0: As providence would have it, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is seated at a banquet table, and most of us sat around a Thanksgiving table, so that's fresh in our minds, and it gives us a a picture in our minds, and um, gives us some context for understanding what was going on at this meal, and what we're about to celebrate later. And the future celebration that awaits believers in heaven. But the question is, will you be sitting at God's table? You could have answered just now if you wanted to. So let's try that again. Will you be sitting at God's table? Yes. And, And how do you know? You have to be invited. You have to be invited. And you have to... Follow up on the invitation. It's not enough to just RSVP. You need to show up in your heart through faith in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is invited to eat at the home of a Pharisee. It wasn't a Thanksgiving dinner. Actually, we find out it was a plot. I hope you weren't invited to your Thanksgiving dinner as a plot, I hope you didn't invite people to your Thanksgiving feast with some ulterior motive, but that's what was going on to refresh our memories. Jesus was on the Sabbath invited to the home of a Pharisee for the purpose of publicly shaming Jesus, catching him in the act of, wait for it, healing the sick on the Sabbath. They had heard that he had done this in the north, and as he's making his way to Jerusalem now, the religious leaders wanted to catch him in the act. So they invite him on a Sabbath in between um, synagogue services to go to a distinguished member of the religious community, go to the house with some other guests, and they invited a, a man who had dropsy. Dropsy is a condition where perhaps the liver or the kidneys are beginning to shut down and the man is swelling with edema and perhaps even he might be oozing. This is not a man that typically the religious elite would want to hang out with. He would be considered unclean and the proof of his uncleanness would be his physical condition, especially this condition. This one and leprosy. You can't hide it. Now, they would never invite a leper over because the leper would be um, forbidden to join the community. He would be unclean and he would have to tell people unclean and keep himself away from the community. But somebody with with dropsy, um, they could be near but not touch. But the dropsy... And the leprosy was proof to them that these people were so filled with iniquity and sin that it was uh, showing up on their external features. So this poor fellow was invited to a dinner with very prestigious people in the community as bait. How self-serving, how uncompassionate, how thoughtless. To use this man as bait. And Jesus saw right through all of that. And before he healed the man said, Is it lawful or unlawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he knew, and he knew that they knew, there wasn't any direct Old Testament law against healing on the Sabbath. And then he chastises those at the table by saying, Which one of you, if your oxen or your son fallen into a pit on the Sabbath, you would do the work to get them out, wouldn't you? How much more than this son of Abraham, one of of us, one in our community, why wouldn't we heal him on the Sabbath? And he heals the man and dismisses him. And decides to stay at the table and begins teaching. So let's pick up the story, Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And all God's people said, Amen. He got it right. And you'll notice Jesus doesn't rebuke him, but goes on to tell a parable But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land, and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, Well, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and among the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. This is the gospel of our Lord. Many who were invited, will not eat at his table. Apparently, it's not enough to be invited. Many will make excuses. And yet, we're sitting here wondering, after all this beautiful worship, Our hearts are filled to overflowing and we're surrounded with the people we love, singing about the God we love, singing about His precious gift of His Son, shedding His blood on the cross to purchase our souls for eternal life with God. What could be better than sitting at the table eating bread with the King of kings and Lord of lords? When one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Amen. Finally, somebody at the table said something correct. Breaking bread together in Jesus' day was a big deal. We get a glimpse of it at Thanksgiving and other feasts, maybe a wedding celebration but in our the hustle and bustle of modern life most families are no longer sitting around the dinner table or inviting others to come over for dinner but this was a very intimate occasion to break bread together they reclined at the table they would lay on cushions the table was low Preparations were made, certain protocols had to be followed, being a good host was very important, making your guests comfortable, inviting the right people. Unfortunately, the intimacy of breaking bread together, the religious leaders and the elite had turned it into a public spectacle. There were ulterior motives at play. How you hosted would be criticized and critiqued. Who was invited? Who wasn't invited? Who sat at which seat? And the courtyard was open to the public so people could observe. This was pre-Instagram. But how's everyone going to know what a great dinner I put on? And how's everyone going to know these amazing guests that I invited, or how are people going to know that I was invited over to so and so's house? And those who couldn't see would eventually find out through the gossip mill. I hope you had a blessed Thanksgiving. It is my favorite holiday. It's my favorite holiday. And I discovered this year. More than ever, why it's my favorite holiday, it had less to do with the food. As you know, I can't eat most of now what is traditionally served at a Thanksgiving dinner. Everything's got wheat in it. A lot of gluten on the table. Lots of it. But it was being around the people that I love. And um, the change of seasons, although I hear back here the seasons reverted back to summer. Um, But being around family, being completely relaxed around people who know your business and know your quirks and we're all good with it. Even though on the drive home we're all probably talking about each other. (laughs) But that's part of family, right? Can you believe so? I think so-and-so's put on a little weight. Can you, look? you know... I can't believe they serve that with that, you know. I guess my family's not the only one. Unconditional love. Even, I love Christmas, but there's pressure with the gift giving. To give the right gifts and to uh, have the right expression on your face when you open gifts. (laughs) The gift gifts are not my love language. I, I'm like, okay, now I have to wear this or put it somewhere where they'll see it or Yeah. My love language is cash. <laughs> 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 Other people share my love language. I I understand. No, really I just I like spending time with people. I just enjoy togetherness. And so a a great meal, great conversation, laughter, storytelling, somehow convincing ourselves there's room for pie. No, really I shouldn't, but I'm gonna, right? Kind of thing. God has... Put that in our heart. Isn't it interesting that our Lord has left us with two ceremonies for us to remember Him? One is baptism, but the second is the Lord's Supper. To gather and break bread together and remember the Lord's death. You get baptized once. You celebrate the Lord's Supper often. So, for Christians, we should enjoy the breaking of bread together more so than than the rest of the world. And we always wonder at Thanksgiving, what are people who don't know God celebrating? Who are they thanking? We know to whom we are giving thanks. We know who provides. So let's not just celebrate Thanksgiving one Thursday a year. This should be our heart attitude 365 days a year. God's people should be thankful. We should enjoy one another's company too around the table. Not just the Lord's supper but i trust you, you open up your home and you have other believers over and break bread together and talk about what the lord's doing in your life and maybe even strategize together talk about ministry i understood this year also as i think of many of you that are precious to me who had someone missing around that Thanksgiving table. That it's really not the food or the football, whatever your traditions are. You could have the perfect spread, the perfect decorations, the perfect weather. And you would give that all up just for one more meal. With that loved one. That tells us that it's the relationships that mean the most. And if that's the case on a human level, how much more is it the case when it comes to God? You see, in our story, these people who said we're the people who love God more than anyone else had God at their table, and they could care less. In fact, they were secretly plotting to get rid of Him. They didn't have people over for the friendship, and they had people over because they were plotting and strategizing and trying to increase their position in society. Sadly, people place other priorities ahead of a relationship with God. And we do so at our own peril. And if we continue to do so, there will be those who will miss out on sitting at God's table for eternity. So Jesus teaches this parable. Remember, parables... We're taught by Jesus not to make teaching more clear, but to hide the truth from those who had already hardened their hearts to the truth. But for believers, the Holy Spirit helps us understand the spiritual truth being taught in the parable. So to the unbeliever, it's a form of judgment. For believers, it's a source of more spiritual truth in a special way. See, how do people living in a material world understand spiritual things? Well, God takes something from our world that we understand and casts it alongside a spiritual truth and draws parallels. The kingdom of God is like, in fact, the word parable in the Greek, Literally means to cast alongside. Parabola. So Jesus is taking an event that we all understand in some way, shape, or form. A banquet. And using it to help us understand spiritual truth. Remember when we're looking at parables. Don't take every aspect of the parable and try to match it with some spiritual truth. Usually there is one overriding message in the parable. So don't allegorize the whole parable because you'll end up making the Bible say something that it doesn't and you'll miss the main point. Here's the main point. People are going to be invited to God's table and they're going to turn down the invitation. Well, who would do that? Right? See, if, if, if he taught this directly, I could just hear the religious leaders saying, oh, now that's ridiculous. Who would turn down an invitation to God's table? Well, for starters, you would. No, no, we wouldn't. They don't want to hear So he's going to hide the teaching in a parable. They think he's teaching about another dinner party here on earth. We understand he's teaching us things about heaven. A certain man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come for everything is ready now. You don't even have to bring anything. All the preparations have been made. Come to Jesus. Well, what do I have to bring? Come just as you are. He's made all the preparations. But they all alike began to make excuses. This is what puts these three people together. They all make excuses. We'll look at each of the excuses in a little more detail, but don't miss the main point was they didn't want to go to the party. They didn't want to go to the dinner. It would be very rude in that culture to turn down an invitation to dinner. Kind of rude in our culture. We have ways of getting out of parties we don't want to go to. I'm sure you have your go-to, yeah, we have a new one in our house. Brent's you know his health is acting up again, and <laughs> yeah, now you know here's the three main excuses, if I could put them into categories. It's not on the screen, but three three main excuses fall into these categories, Um, these aren't what you tell people. These are the reasons you make the excuse. Reason number one is I have something better to do. I have something better to do. Going to that party is going to take time, and I've I've got better things to do with my time. Second reason is um, I don't see any immediate benefit from going to this thing. If, if you're conditioned that way. there not anyone important there? there um, that was more the culture Jesus was living in. People invited other people over. That's why right before he teaches this parable, he says, look, when you throw a party, why don't you invite all the people who can't pay you back? The third reason, though, and it's the most devastating reason is I really just don't like hanging out with these people. Like, going to this thing is going to take effort. I'm going to have to put the smile on. I'm going to have to make the small talk. I'm going to have to laugh politely at their lame jokes. I'm going to have to eat a meal that's not going to be to my liking how much more devastating when we put this into a spiritual context god inviting people to his heavenly banquet and people have something better to do they don't see any benefit from it and frankly are there going to be christians there (laughs) i've heard unbelievers say that why would i want to go to heaven if that's where all the christians are Hey, you know what? Shame on us if if we're giving God a bad name. If none of us were there and the only person there was God, it would be worth it a million fold. So let's look at the three examples Jesus gives as maybe three categories of idols. Let's call them idols. An idol is something that takes the place of God in our heart. Three idols that would get in the way of people wanting to party with God, to celebrate with God, to sit at God's table for all eternity. This, This first idol is just possessions. I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. That's like right up there with tonight's my hair-washing night. Come on, people. I bought some land, and I need to go out and look at it. It's not going anywhere. I think it's more than just looking at it. I think what's implied here is I've got plans for this piece of land, and I want to get started on those plans right away. I'm going to put a little you know house over here and a vineyard over here and a garden here, and going to your party is... Not interesting to me. Instead of our eternal home, this person is consumed with the here and now, his own little kingdom. When we look at an idol, we won't repent from the idol unless we look at the idol behind the idol. It's easy to say, well, we all know that we shouldn't put possessions ahead of God. But you're not going to grow and change unless you ask the really hard question, what is behind the idol? What is behind the idolatry of your possessions? It's things like a false sense of security. Look, if I set up my own little kingdom just the way I like it, I will survive any catastrophe. It's one thing to be prepared in this life. It's another thing to be so prepared in this life you're completely unprepared for the next. And if you start having people over, they might mess up your little kingdom. Are you okay if... uh, You had some folks over with little kids and there was some breakage or spillage. Or is going to your house so uncomfortable that nobody really... Can I sit here? Is this okay right right here? I don't want to defile any of your possessions. My family gets a good laugh out of old... um, Little House on the Prairie episodes. And there's one where uh, Nellie Olson says, we have three sets of dishes. One for everyday use, one for special occasions, and then one that we only bring out for very important people, which we've never used. Isn't it great to hang out with people where if it was paper plates and hot dogs and everyone was having a good time? it's The, the, the company is what's important. Some of these shows on TV, I think, are discouraging people from hosting anything because they don't have the right matching set of all the... I don't have time to hand make centerpieces for, you know, those things are nice and they're lovely and they add, they can add to the festivity of the occasion. But when they begin to subtract, they become idolatrous. When you know what's more important to the host, you or their stuff, False idol number two, (coughs) work. I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. This isn't like I'm taking it out for a test drive. It's more you would buy oxen to, to plow, to harvest. This guy wants to get back to work. His work is his life. Work's a good thing. Work's a gift from God. Adam was put in the garden and he worked. Work gives dignity. And those who do not work shall not eat. But work can very easily turn into an idol. You're working so much you don't feel like you can go celebrate with a friend, then something's out of whack. What's the idol behind the idol of work? Perhaps it's your identity's rooted in your profession instead of in Christ. My work is my identity. Men especially struggle with this. The first thing men do when they meet and they're sizing each other up, not that we do that, yeah, right. Hey, oh, hey, nice to meet you. So what do you do? I don't know what all these unemployed millennials living in their parents' basement are going to tell each other. <laughs> You're going to need a new identity. At least you won't struggle with the idolatry of work. Um, it could be An unhealthy sense of self esteem that's grounded in worldly accomplishments. It's not just enough that you have a title of a job. What have you accomplished in that job? So then, usually, the men start talking about their accomplishments after, you know. It's the weirdest thing to me that when I meet other pastors and they find out I'm a pastor, within two or three more questions, they want to know how large is your church? I'm like, are you kidding me? I know we all learned in seminary that it's not about numbers. So why do you bother asking? By the way, both services very full today. (laughs) Very blessed. I can go home with a healthy sense of self-esteem. My counseling professor used to call self-esteem selfish steam. It's the steam that makes the engine of narcissism uh, run. Self-esteem. There is such a thing as biblical esteem. But it needs to come from others. You shouldn't esteem yourself. If you work hard for the Lord, use your gifts and talents to His glory, serve other people. At the end of the day, you can here, well done, good and faithful servant. And doesn't that bring a great sense of peace and well-being and blessedness? Amen. That is good esteem. Self-esteem is this, I need to prove to myself I'm a, a good and valuable person at the expense of others. And by golly, other people better notice. That's selfish esteem. So, this fellow turned up turned uh, turned up a dinner invitation because he's got something to prove at work. The third uh false idol, which is a strange one to me because we're supposed to be about one another, but you can turn another person into an idol. You could turn human relationships into into idolatrous relationships. I feel bad that this guy threw his wife under the bus to get out of a dinner invitation. I'm not really sure what is going on with this excuse. You know, it, there, there may be like he's, he's newly wed and he wants to be with his wife and please his wife, and so he turned down this invitation. Again, though, you'd be reading too much into it and you'd miss the point. The point is we can turn anything into an excuse to not make God the most important thing in our life. To not make a relationship with God the greatest source of joy and blessing in our life. What's the idol behind this idol? Uh, we call it fear of man. The Bible calls it fear, fear of man. Caring too much about what other people think than what God thinks we see this a lot with, with youth who are in their late teens, early 20s and the boyfriend or the girlfriend hasn't come along or the spouse and they feel incomplete until they have someone else to validate them, love them, tell them you're special. You're afraid of being rejected or alone. Or the newlywed couple who wants to start a family, and in God's providence, he's closed up the womb, and you begin to think, if I don't have that child, and somehow I'm lesser of a person. For ladies especially, this is a struggle, I, I'm not validated till I'm a mother, and if You're struggling with that today. I know Country Oaks is a hard place to be because people sneeze and have babies in this church. Uh, There are babies everywhere. And you begin to feel like everyone's having a baby but you. And just trust in the Lord's providence. Trust in the Lord's providence. And I'm sure if you sat down with some of the mothers, they'd say like, I envy you. <laughs> I'm so tired. I'm so stressed. But how easily we can turn human relationships into an idol where we say, I'm too busy for all the things that God says are the good things in life because, you know, by golly, I'm taking care of this human relationship. I don't have time to worship, I don't have time to pray, I don't have time to serve. Certainly you don't have time to go to some dinner party. We understand, though, this side of the cross that what's really going on here, first and foremost, was that God's chosen people, Israel, the religious leaders of Israel, the the teachers of the people of Israel who should know better are the very people Jesus is aiming this parable at primarily. You've been invited to sit at God's table and you've rejected the invitation and Israel's rejected the invitation over and over and over again. It's what the whole record of the Old Testament is about. They rejected the invitation because the invitation said, in order to come to the table, one thing is required. You must acknowledge your need for God's forgiveness. You must acknowledge that you are in need of God's mercy. You cannot come to the feast through your own works. In fact, it's insulting to God to come to a free dinner... It'd be like being invited to a wedding and saying, well, where do I drop off the $5,000 check? First of all, the wedding cost way more than that, so that's an insult. Secondly, you were invited for free because we wanted to enjoy your company and have you celebrate our big day. God has invited us at His table at His expense, at the expense of the life of His own Son. And these people thought they had earned their way to the table, believed they deserved the best seat at the table, were convinced that they were the most important people at the table, and that it was their prerogative to decide who deserved to be at the table and who didn't deserve to be at the table. And so the parable continues, and Jesus says, Because the people who were invited would not come, we're going to invite some different people. Since all the somebodies refused to come, we're inviting all the nobodies. And aren't you glad you're a nobody? I'm glad I'm a nobody because in Christ, now I'm a somebody. Purely by association. You must see yourself on the list of the poor and blind and crippled and lame. Spiritually. Given enough time, we'll all fit the description physically. Spiritually poor, spiritually crippled, spiritually blind, spiritually lame. I like that. I'm spiritually lame. <laughs> How about you? Yeah. And yet we're given Christ's perfect righteousness through faith. Uh, We're fitted with the proper clothes so we could go to the dinner. We know there's another parable where people who are invited, somebody tried to get in wearing the wrong clothes. Hey, where's, where's the robes of righteousness I gave you to wear? Don't try to come to God's dinner in your own fancy clothes. Jesus has provided you his righteous robes through faith. And it turns out there's room for even more people. The slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges. So go out beyond Israel. He's, he's calling in Samaritans and Gentiles here. The sojourner, those living outside the gates. So that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. So why do people reject God's invitation then? Paul puts it this way in Romans 1. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him. As God. Wow. They knew God. They knew who God is. But did not honor him as God. As the one who has the prerogatives of deity. He gets to determine the rules. He gets to determine the guest list. He gets to determine... uh, how you will enter the feast, what is served, where everyone will sit. God is sovereign, and they did not want to honor God as sovereign. Nor did they want to give thanks. And it's very strange to put thanklessness on the list of major crimes of humanity. We kind of scold our children when they forget to say thank you. God reveals to us in the pages of Scripture that it's right there at the top of the list. Because why are you thankless? You're thankful when you're appreciative of what is given to you. People find God unimpressive and are not thankful for the good gifts He has given us. And so, in our foolishness, Paul goes on to say, we exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man. We, we give up what is eternal for things that are temporal. We give up the true God for idols that can't satisfy. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God in the garden with surrounded by a feast. And they thought there was more. They gave it all up for what was behind door number two. And God... The God who loves them, the God who created them, the God who cared for them, warned them that behind door number two is death. And they said, we don't believe you. Basically, we don't believe you. We think there's something better back there. We'll, we'll give all this up for what's behind door number two. That is the heart of ingratitude. I think there's something better. Better than God? God? Ingratitude stems from a heart that believes we deserve better than God. Oh, there's got to be something better than this relationship with God. Jesus, who has had and always will have a perfect relationship with the Father, says this in his high priestly prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son and that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh... That to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life. This is the prize. This is what is going to bring ultimate satisfaction. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The treasure is knowing God. But the world thinks that the world's things are the ultimate treasures. And even those of us who believe in God, we are often guilty of thanking God as a means to an end. Yes, I know God. Yes, I believe in Jesus Christ. And then we live as if that's not the prize. The prize is now when is he going to start delivering the goods? Where's my happiness now? Where's my comfort now? Where is my achievement now? If you're looking for things to repent of, and the three idols on the list didn't strike a chord with you, hopefully this one will. Yes, you believe in God. Yes, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, you love God and you're looking forward to eternity with Him, but. Are you in the here and now loving God not for who God is, but for what you can get from Him? Think back to the illustration of being at the Thanksgiving table and having the perfect Thanksgiving. Or the Christmas table with the the perfect decorations, the perfect Christmas, a little snow falling, perfect gift under the tree. But all the people you love are missing. That, that tells us that the relationship is the thing. Not what you can get from the people you are in relationship with. Just being together in one another's presence is the gift. God becomes a mean to an end instead of the end. So dwell on who God is in his beauty and his glory. Get your heart back to that place, to your first love. Having Jesus is what I am thankful for. Then we'll sit around the table together. That is what it will mean to be sitting at God's table. All the other accoutrements will be nice. But who cares? Because Jesus is going to be at the table. And we're going to be there with them. John puts it this way in Revelation, that I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself Ready. That's us. And then he said to me. Write. Blessed are those. Who are invited. To the marriage supper of the Lamb." And he said to me. These are true words of God. Beloved. The invitation is there. Are you going to show up? You'll show up when you resolve in your heart that being with God is the greatest thing. You won't turn down that invitation. And here's the good news. If you invite Jesus into your heart, he's not going to say, well, I've got something better to do. Or there's nothing in it for me. Or frankly, hanging out in that heart No, he's compassionate and merciful and loving. You're invited to his table if you'll just invite Jesus to take over your life. Let me say a blessing over you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord look upon you with his favor and give you his peace. Amen.